As we move on in our service this morning, we're continuing through the series, Hymns of Christ. This week we'll be looking at Christ's humility uh, from Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So would you open your Bible or device to Philippians 2 with me? Philippians 2 says this, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at that name, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church family. My name is Tim, and I have the privilege of opening up God's word for us this morning. And I just have to say thank you. Thank you so much for those that have reached out and connected. I just, I'm so thankful for those connection points and those opportunities to hear stories of God's faithfulness in your lives, in God's faithfulness in the church. And I am praying for every single one of you. I invite your prayers for our family as well. And we look forward to being there in person very soon. Would you join with me in a word of prayer? Our Father, teach us your ways and help us keep them to the very end. Give us understanding that we might keep your law and obey it with all of our hearts. Lead us in the path of your commandments and help us to delight in them. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn our eyes from looking at worthless things and give us life in your ways. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. The story is told of a certain church in Dallas, Texas, that became so bitterly divided that each side instituted a lawsuit against the other seeking to dispossess the other side of the church property. The story hit the Dallas newspapers and garnered considerable interest among readers. The judge wisely ruled that it was not the province of the court to decide such matters until the case had been heard before the denomination's church court. So the dispute was remanded to the ecclesiastical court, where eventually the decision was made to award the real estate and properties to one side. The losers then withdrew and actually formed another church nearby. It was reported in the Dallas newspapers that the church court had traced the trouble to its source. The trouble began when at a church dinner, an elder had been served a smaller slice of ham than a child seated next to him. I know this may sound like a humorous example, but the sad thing is that stories like these are all too true. Many of the deepest dangers of the church have come from divisions from within. 
Karl Barth notes that there are no letters in the New Testament apart from the problems of the church. Knowing the danger of the church unraveling from within, the Apostle Paul issues a passionate appeal in Philippians 2 verses 1 through 11 to live a humble, others-oriented life, following the example of Christ and for the glory of God. So I invite you to turn, if you haven't already, to Philippians 2 verses 1 through 11. The book of Philippians really is like Paul's thank you note to this dear church that he loved and cherished so deeply. I just picture Jimmy Fallon, you know, putting his pen to the thank you note saying, thank you. That's what Paul's doing here. Thank you, church at Philippi. He encourages them to discover joy in whatever situation that they face in life and ultimately in Christ himself. He also expands on the key themes of unity in the body of Christ the proclamation and practicing of the gospel, as well as the progress that we are to seek in the faith. Philippians begins with a joyful greeting, expression of thanksgiving and deep affection and joy, and prayer for love to abound. Then in what follows, Paul reveals how the gospel is advancing even in the midst of his imprisonment. He shows hopeful confidence that no matter what happens to him, he will be delivered and Christ will be exalted because to live is Christ and to die is gain. In Philippians 1, 27-30, he challenges the Philippians to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ and calls them to unity and togetherness in the face of opposition, in the face of suffering, an opposition that is coming primarily from outside of the church. Turning then to Philippians 2, 1 through 11, which we will be exploring this morning, Paul picks up on some of these same themes but applies them to unity within the church. If the Philippians are going to live lives worthy of the gospel and remain united in the face of opposition, they must also guard against unraveling from within. They must also guard against divisions that would seek to harm the very fabric of the church. Here is a passionate appeal to live a humble, others-oriented life, following the example of Christ and for the glory of God. In our time together this morning, we're going to look at Paul's passionate appeal for humility in verses 1 through 4, and then the ultimate example of humility found in Christ in verses 5 through 11. So first, Paul calls the Philippians to live a humble, others-oriented life, verses 1 through 4. In verse 1, Paul actually connects this exhortation with what he has just said in verses 27 through 30 of the previous chapter. Look at verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. I'll stop there for just a second. You know, these four if statements form the foundation and motivation for unity. Paul is not doubting that these realities are true in the lives of the Philippians. These statements are actually, could actually more uh, be rendered something along the lines of since or if, as is indeed the case. So it's as if Paul is saying, indeed, you have encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the spirit, affection and sympathy. So with that as the foundation, Paul gives the main command found in verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. You know, we might expect Paul right here to give the main command to be of the same mind. But why does he say, complete my joy by being of the same mind? 
You're thinking about a gas station for a minute here. Pretty much every gas station nowadays has the warning to not top off. Who here is guilty of maybe squeezing a couple times trying to round off to the nearest dollar? Uh, <clears throat> I know there's got to be a few among us, but Paul clearly views this church with such tenderness and thankfulness, so much. They have been such a deep source of joy for him. And like a proud parent, he encourages them that if they do this, if they, are, if they will be of one mind, it's like they will top off his joy tank. It will just completely overflow. It will overflow with joy. The main way they can make his joy complete is by being of the same mind. This phrase is so connected that the NET translates it, complete my joy and be of the same mind. In fact, as we go along, I want you to notice all of the references to the Philippians being of the same mind. What follows then are instructions that further explain how they can complete his joy and be of the same mind. Look at the rest of verse 2. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul urges them to have the same love. He has already prayed in chapter 1, verse 9, that their love would abound more and more, but he recognizes the danger of their love for one another eroding because of internal strife. Fast forward to chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and you learn of two women who are at odds with one another. Paul writes, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Although these issues had not reached the level of those perhaps in other letters in the New Testament, Paul recognizes the need to constantly stress love, unity, and humility. He also exhorts them to be in full accord. The word behind that phrase means harmonious or one-souled. I love that image, one-souled. And he encourages them to be of one mind. There it is again, to be of one mind. Then in verses 3 through 4, there are two what we might call not-rather statements, a negative example followed by a positive one. First, if selfish ambition and conceit, literally vainglory, vainglory, Sounds like something out of Pilgrim's Progress, right? Vainglory. If these are surefire ways to erode relationships within the church, then the best safeguard is to humbly value others above ourselves. In Paul's day and in the Greco-Roman world, humility was not seen as a virtue. It was seen more as a weakness. In stark contrast, humility is a uniquely Christian virtue that is grounded in the message of a crucified Savior. Humility should not be confused with false modesty. Instead, it has to do with a right understanding of ourselves as creatures before the Creator, utterly dependent upon Him and trusting in Him in all things. True humility is God and others oriented. Second, since we naturally look out for our own interests, the key, Paul says here, is applying that same level of concern to those around us. Not looking out merely for our own interests, but also for the interests of others. Paul calls the Philippians to others-oriented attitudes and actions. In light of these first few verses, I just want to highlight three takeaways. Three takeaways. First, let us, like Paul, let us remind people of the blessings of the gospel 
while calling them to live it out. I love seeing Paul's shepherding heart on display here, but before he dives into these exhortations, he reminds them of the blessings that are theirs because of Jesus Christ, the blessings that are theirs because of God's great gospel, encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the spirit, affection and sympathy. You know, if all we, uh, if all we ever do is tell people what they must do in our parenting, in our teaching, in our discipling, we run the risk of promoting a gospel of moralism. Let us instead remind one another of the true gospel of God's grace and frame obedience then as a proper response to the gospel at work in our lives, the gospel that that transforms. Second takeaway, let us be like-minded by maintaining unity in purpose and in the gospel. Does Paul's appeal here that we be of the same mind, me, same mind mean that we should all think the same way? Have the same opinions? Is that what's in view here? Are we, as human beings, are we mere automatons? I don't think so. The emphasis here is not on a drab uniformity in our thinking. It has to do more with a mindset. Having unity in purpose and in the gospel, not in having the same opinion about everything. Think about it. The church is a radical counterculture where there is unity in diversity. Each of us should embrace and use our diverse gifts, passions, abilities, personalities, uh, backgrounds, and experiences to glorify God and to build up, to edify Christ's church. Rather than belittling our sisters and brothers who may not think the same way as us or, or breaking fellowship with them, we are called to a higher way of holy love a higher way of holy love, where there is room for different expressions and where all are united in the common cause of Christ, our Savior. As C.E.B. Cranfield once wrote, such unity will only come when Christians are humble and bold enough to lay hold of the unity already given in Christ and to take it more seriously than their own self-importance and to make of those deep differences of doctrine which originate in our imperfect understanding of the gospel and which we dare not belittle, not an excuse for letting go of one another or staying apart, but rather an incentive for a more earnest seeking in fellowship together to hear and obey the voice of Christ. Mm, Amen. Amen to that. Third takeaway, let us, O church, cultivate humility by valuing others above ourselves and being concerned about the interests of others. Valuing others above ourselves and being concerned about the interests of others. How many of us can say that we do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit? I do, th- I do things out of my own selfishness, e- selfishness every day. And how many selfish thoughts do we have that we don't even act upon? You know, I have become acutely aware of this, maybe even more than before, with all of the Zoom calls that I have been doing. And I don't know about if you have the same tendency, but I can't believe how much in a Zoom call I find myself looking at myself, thinking, is that really my posture? Is there something in my teeth? Is that, is that really what people see when they, when they hop on one of these calls? Or take, for example, looking at a picture when you're in it. I don't know about you, but I have a tendency, the very first place that I look is at myself to see how do I look? in that picture and judge the quality of the photo based on how well I look. 
instead of selfish ambition, vainglory, and only looking out for ourselves. We are called to a higher way of humble love. In reading this passage, one cannot help but think about what is happening in the world around us, not only with COVID-19, but also in the face of racial injustice. This pandemic has resulted in significant challenges, and there are so many swirling opinions even within churches. In the midst of everything happening, we have the opportunity as believers to model the kind of humble love that places the interests of others before our own. All of us should, as church members should model Christ-like humility in how we react to things like health department guidelines, the requirements that may be placed upon us by places like the Music Institute of Chicago, and the plans being prayerfully put together by our own church's leadership. Let's acknowledge that we don't have all of the answers, that not everything is obvious, and that we are all trying to do the best we can and to save lives in this time. I commend to you a great article in the Gospel Coalition, from the Gospel Coalition called Church, Don't Let Coronavirus Divide You. In a similar way, we are called to be concerned about the interests of others in the face of racial injustice as well. Let us not shrink back in this moment. I believe this is a pivotal moment, especially in the life of our nation. But let us instead, as people of faith, become more aware. Let us have greater empathy and understanding. Let us engage in our own self-examination. Pray for God's justice to be done and take action where God calls us to take action, where God leads us. You know, I commend to you an eye-opening video put together by Phil Vischer of the, the Holy Post podcast, maybe better known as one of the creators of VeggieTales. Uh, I made the mistake last week of introducing my three-year-old daughter to, uh, oh, where is my hairbrush? And that's been on repeat in our house, but I digress. Anyway, Phil Vischer put together this great eye-opening video called Race in America, which explores the history of racial inequity in the United States. I commend it to you. I, I ask you to watch through that if you haven't already. In terms of having greater empathy, this is a critical time to truly listen to the pain experienced by our black sisters and brothers. And as we humbly ask God to examine our own hearts, to shed light upon our own lives, let us take inventory. Let us understand our own biases and let us repent where God moves us to repent. This sort of radical humility that Paul's talking about here, this sort of radical humility is so rare. In fact, what Paul does next is give us what is the true example of humility. He lifts up, Paul holds up Christ as the ultimate example of humility in verses 5 through 11. Verse 5 links this section with what just came before it. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Humility is not just a strategy for being united as a church. It is part of what it means to be conformed to the very image of Christ. Verses 6 through 11, I have to admit, are some of the most famous in all of the New Testament and have been poured over by scholars. Some see in these verses a hymn that predates Paul that he adapted for his own uses. Others see it written by Paul, but having soaring hymn-like qualities that he adapts. 
Many have combed these verses for what they contribute to Christian theology, and especially Christology, and that's great, but I think it's important for us to remember its purpose in the first place. Paul's not laying out some sort of theological treatise, but instead holding up Christ as the ultimate example of humility. This entire hymn has a U shape to it. In fact, this week I might share with you a, a, little, a little doodle that might help you understand the shape of this passage, but it has a U shape to it that moves from the humiliation of Christ, has the cross at the very center, and then moves upward again in the exaltation of Christ. So let's begin with the humiliation of Christ in verses 6 through 8. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The humiliation of Christ here moves from Christ's pre-existent glory to his renunciation incarnation, and crucifixion. It begins with Jesus clearly as equal with God. Even before coming to this earth, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Think about this image. It's beautiful. Instead of grasping, Christ gives. Instead of seizing, Christ surrenders. In emptying himself, Christ set aside his glory. He did not give up any aspect of his deity. He did not cease to be divine. Instead, he gave up the privileges that were rightly his as king of the universe, became fully human as an ordinary Jewish baby, and took the position of a servant destined for the cross. Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He lived a perfect life of obedience and humbled himself to the point of death. Paul underscores this by adding the phrase, even death on a cross. Not only did he become obedient to death, but he went through one of the most painful and humiliating deaths imaginable, death on a cruel Roman cross. Sean McDonough makes this point well when he writes, crucifixion was not simply a convenient way of executing prisoners. It was the ultimate indignity, a public statement by Rome that the crucified one was beyond contempt. The excruciating physical pain was magnified by the degradation and humiliation. No other form of death, no matter how prolonged or physically agonizing, could match crucifixion as an absolute destruction of the person. It was the ultimate counterpoint to the divine majesty of the preexistent Christ, and thus was the ultimate expression of Christ's obedience to the Father. In thinking about Jesus emptying himself, Brian Chappell, who was a, a pastor, who was the pastor of my home church up until recently, actually, shares this story from an African missionary. The missionary shares that in a particular part of Africa where he serves, the chief is the strongest man in the village. That's an important detail. As the chief, he also wears a very large headdress and ceremonial robes. One day, a man carrying water out of the shaft of a deep well fell and broke his leg and lay helpless at the bottom of the well. To get down to the bottom, one would have to climb down using the alternating slits that go all the way deep down into the well and then climb all the way back up. 
Because no one could carry the helpless man up like this, the chief was summoned. When he saw the plight of the man, he laid aside his headdress, and he took off his robe, and he climbed all the way down to the bottom, put the injured man upon himself, and brought this man up to safety. This chief did what no other man could do. And that's what Jesus has done for us. That's what Jesus has done for us. He came to rescue us. He laid aside his heavenly glory like the chief did. With his, like the chief did with his headdress. Jesus did this so that you and I could be saved. Starting in verse 9 then, this magnificent hymn moves upward again in the exaltation of Christ. Look at verses 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His humiliation became the basis for his exaltation. The exaltation of Christ moves from the crucifixion, this low point, to his exalted position, adoration and confession, and then back to, finally back to the glory of God the Father. From pre-existing glory to the glory of God the Father. What an amazing shape to this passage. Paul implies the resurrection and ascension here along the way and goes straight for Christ being exalted to the right hand of the Father, demonstrating both victory and vindication. And it may not necessarily be entirely clear what the name above every name is. But in the light of verse 11, it is most likely Yahweh, translated Lord, God's holy covenantal name. You know, Jesus was sometimes called Lord in the Gospels, but is most often in the sense of master or sir. Now Paul says Jesus should be confessed as Lord, which Paul does 15 times. And the central affirmation, this central affirmation that Jesus is Lord is key to saving faith in Jesus Christ. In Romans 10, verse 9, Paul writes, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Then in verse 10, Paul pivots from what God the Father has done to exalt Christ to what God will do to exalt Christ. A day is coming when every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Bending the knee, of course, in Paul's day, in just about every other era, is a universal sign of paying homage. And heaven, earth, and under the earth captures every realm imaginable. Angels, human beings, even evil spiritual forces, all will acknowledge Jesus' lordship. The central confession will be, Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul actually places Lord in the place of primacy in this text. A little rendering would be, the Lord is Jesus Christ. Back in Isaiah 45, verse 23, God himself says, By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. The emphasis of what that whole text in Isaiah is saying is that there is only one God to whom all praise and honor and glory is due. There is only one God. Stunningly, 
Paul uses this passage in Isaiah to show the worship that Christ is to receive, that Christ is to receive. There is one God, and he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The hymn then crescendos to the very end, to the glory of God the Father. Even in his exaltation, Jesus does not keep the glory to himself. He does not grasp, but he gives. He gives glory to his Father. Three brief takeaways for us to consider from this magnificent hymn. First, I just want to challenge us as a church to commit Philippians 2, 5 through 11 to memory. Let us commit this to memory. You know, this is such a central passage for understanding who Jesus is and what he came to do and how everything in creation is moving toward acknowledging him as Lord. Even more, it is an ultimate example. It is the ultimate example of the humility we are to have in our relationships, not only with God, but with one another. We have the word readily available at our fingertips. We have it in our, in our smartphones, readily searchable and, and right there. I wonder if we are losing that art and spiritual discipline at times of scripture memorization. I know, I know that that has been true in my life. I just want to challenge us all to commit Philippians 2, 5 through 11 to memory. May these words sink deep within our hearts. And as we recall these words, may they stir our affection and may they stir our action as well. Second, let us look to the example of Christ and let us imitate the example that he gives. Imitate this example of humility. May Christ's mindset be ours. Instead of grasping, let us give. Instead of seizing for ourselves, let us surrender for others. May we set aside our own privileges and our own prerogatives, make ourselves nothing and assume the very posture of a servant. Perhaps one of the most vivid illustrations of that in the New Testament is Jesus stooping to wash the fishy, funky, foul feet of his disciples. What a, what a beautiful picture that ca should capture our hearts and imaginations as well. Let us stoop to serve those around, other, around us as well. May we humble, humble ourselves and obey God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. And instead of seeking vainglory, let us seek the glory of God the Father above all else. Let us live our lives to the glory of God the Father. And third, let us look forward to that day when every knee will bow. Every knee will, t every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God exalted Jesus to the highest place. God gave him the name that is above every other name. Long for that day, O church. Let us long for that day when he will be revealed in glory. Every knee will bow. The question for us is, will your knee bowing be forced or voluntary? Every tongue will confess. Will you confess Christ out of mere acknowledgement or out of worship. Dear church, let us live a humble, others-oriented life, following the example of Christ and for the glory of God alone. The gospel begins with God who created us in his image, who loves us with a never-stopping love. Jesus Christ has always existed, is equal with God, and is co-creator. He is 
the supreme image of God. We saw so much of that last week in Colossians 1, 15 through 23. He is the chief image of God. Think about Adam and Eve versus Christ for a second. Adam and Eve, being human, desired divinity. Being in God's image, they considered equality with God as something to be seized, something to be something to be grasped. Jesus, being God, relinquished his rightful position of honor, and instead of grasping, he gave of himself in love. Adam and Eve tried to become like God. Christ, who is God, became fully human. He set aside his glory. He became fully human. He lived a perfect life of obedience and died the most humiliating and shameful death imaginable on a cruel Roman cross. But the story doesn't end there. He rose again to victorious life, was exalted by God to the highest place, and given the name that is above every other name. Our response should be to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Someday every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Will yours be forced or voluntary? Is Jesus exalted to the highest place in your life? Is his name the the name that is above every other name on your lips? O church, we are indeed called to live a humble, others-oriented life following the example of Christ and for the glory of God. May God give us such grace and strength to do exactly that for the good of others, but ultimately for the glory of God. Amen, church. Amen. Let us pray. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. We praise you, our Father, for making your divine truth real to us in your Son, in the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you for his ultimate example of humility that he has given us, in his humiliation, in his giving of himself in love, in going to the cross, and that you have exalted him, that you have given him the name that is above every other name. Oh God, we ask that what we do, how we live, and the way we love may increasingly become a worthy response to what Christ has done in our lives. We pray for the grace and strength through your spirit to live out your truth as you have called us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.